Well, I now have the privilege of turning in God's Word to our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning as we continue looking at Joel. We come to Joel chapter 2 and read here verses 18 through 27. Joel chapter 2 verses 18 through 27. This is God's holy word as he gave to Joel the prophet. And we come therefore to read this word with reverence because it is the very word of the living God. But Joel 2 again 18 through 27. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. But I will remove far from you the northern army, and will drive him away into a barren and desolate land, with his face toward the eastern sea and his back toward the western sea, his stench will come up and his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up and the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion. And rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. The threshing floors shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. This ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. Let's seek him in prayer. Lord, we do thank you that indeed you have given us this word to assure us that you do bless your people, especially when we repent. So we pray that we would learn the lessons that you have to teach us in this particular passage of Scripture. Take them to heart and put them in practice to your service, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last time we read God's call to Judah to repent. And we saw that repentance has to be with the whole heart, with genuine sorrow for sin. It has to be a genuine act of worship, but it has to be glorifying God, that is. It has to be thorough. It has to involve everyone who needs to repent. It has to be a priority, and it has to be prayerful. When genuine repentance takes place, God is ready to forgive. In fact, that adds a, a complication to how we actually date the book of Joel. In the first part of chapter 2, the Lord threatens an invasion by a foreign army. And of course, as we see here, there's a, a, one of the promises of blessing is to send that foreign army away. Uh, and so it seems like this probably did actually happen. But there's 
always the chance, as we read the scripture here, that, that what if the, the threat caused the people to repent, and then the invasion that was threatened didn't actually happen? This might not have been right before the invasion of the Assyrians or the Babylonians. Uh, maybe the invasion threatened here never happened because the people of Judah actually repented. Well, in today's passage, we do see that the Lord makes certain promises to Judah, to the people of the kingdom of Judah, if they would engage in genuine repentance, the kind of repentance that we saw last time. And those promises include, number one, the Lord will take pity on his people and their land. Number two, the Lord will restore the land's prosperity. And third, he will drive away the enemies of his people. Fourth, he will give abundant blessing. And fifth, he will restore his people to faithfulness. Now, we have to recognize that these are promises that are in particular for that particular situation. Uh, we can't presume that we can follow a formula and somehow force God's hand, force God to give us the same blessings that we see here if we just follow certain rules. But we can draw some conclusions about God's character, and thus what he likes to do for his people, what he's pleased to do for his people, namely that, number one, he is ready to forgive. God is ready to forgive those who truly repent. Number two, when he removes blessings as a means of chastising, of correcting, of disciplining his people for sin, he usually, not always, but he usually will restore that blessing when they repent. Third, he protects repentant sinners, particularly in their repentance. He protects them from the sin itself. Fourth, he abundantly blesses repentant sinners, and fifth, he is pleased to glorify himself through the repentance of his people. So let's look at the promises that God made to Judah in this particular passage here in Joel's day. And from those promises, uh, we can extrapolate these more general principles that we can apply to our own lives. So what did God tell Judah through the prophet Joel would happen if the people would repent. That's the first question here. It's particularly helpful to remember what God instructed the priests to say when the people were gathered for worship and fasting in verse 17 of this chapter. The priests are supposed to pray this, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? In today's passage, we see that when Judah actually engages in that genuine repentance, several things are going to happen. When they pray that prayer, genuinely, several things will happen. The first thing is, the Lord will take pity on his people and their land. We see this in verse 18. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will be zealous for his land, for this land that he's given to his people. He will have zeal for it, enthusiasm for the restoration of the land. And in scripture, by the way, the, the words that we translate as zealous and jealous are actually the same words in Hebrew and Greek. Uh, a healthy jealousy, therefore, we can read this as. Uh, that 
that the Lord has a healthy jealousy for his land, which does not allow anyone outside his covenant to encroach upon it. And here we see also that the Lord is ever ready to forgive his people when they repent. He says he pities them. He's going to pity them. John tells us in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Lord is ever ready to forgive repenting sinners. If you repent of your sins, you confess them before him and you turn from them and ask him to help you to turn from them, he is ready to forgive. Another lesson we see here for Judah is that the Lord will restore the land's prosperity. He promises to restore the land's prosperity if they repent. Verse 19, The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. In chapter 1, we saw that Judah had experienced this plague of locusts and this drought uh, in Chapter 1, verse 10, they mourned that the grain, the wine, and the oil were cut off. Here the Lord says, I will give you grain and wine and oil. God's promising here to restore the land's economic prosperity. Remember that, that those things, grain and wine and oil, weren't just uh, food for them. They were currency. As we see in Scripture, for example, as I've noted before, Solomon actually paid the workers who built the temple in grain, wine, and oil. Or if you have a King James Version, the corn, wine, and oil. They didn't have corn, what we think of as corn, uh, but they had grain. That word used to mean just grain in general. Grain, wine, and oil is what was a uh, currency. They were currencies for the people of Israel. So God's promising here to restore the land's economic prosperity. And we're told they will be satisfied by the amount of grain, wine, and oil that they have. That's a, a word that means that they'll be filled up enough. The threat in the first part of chapter 2 was that an invading army would burn everything in its path. If, however, Judah repented, the land will be restored to its former prosperity. Even if all of that devastation happens, God will restore the former prosperity. The kingdom will no longer be reproached among the nations. No one will be able to look at Judah and say, there's a nation that's cursed by God. In verse 21 through 24, he speaks of restoration. First of animal and plant life, fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up, and the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their strength. In verse 23, we see restoration of rain in regular patterns. Be glad, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for, your, for you. The former rain and the latter rain in the first month. So there will be plenty of rain, even after this time of drought. There's an end to the drought spoken of in 
chapter 1. Then comes a restoration of crops in abundance. Verse 24, The threshing floor shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. Periods of prosperity like this indeed occurred, for example, during the reign of Hezekiah. That's one of the reasons, again, that I think that this is probably talking most likely about the invasion, the time before the invasion by the Assyrians that happened during Hezekiah's reign. So that gives weight to that being the most likely time here. Now, as I said, we ought not to extrapolate from this that if we do certain things, like repent and believe, or believe hard enough, as some people will say, that, that God will automatically give us earthly prosperity, that he's going to give us health and wealth. That's, that's not the promise here. But that said, uh, what we do see is that if the Lord removes a former blessing because of sin, he will usually restore that blessing when the sinner or sinners repent. In this case, those blessings that had been removed included earthly prosperity. And so God promises in this case to restore that prosperity when the people repent of their sins. Those blessings also included military security, which then brings us to our next point, number three, the Lord will drive away the enemies of his people. Verse 20, But I will remove far from you the northern army, and will drive him away into a barren and desolate land, with his face toward the eastern sea and his back toward the western sea, his stench will come up and his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. Now, you might notice the word army if you have your New King James Version there that I'm reading from in front of you. The word army is in italics. It doesn't actually appear in the Hebrew text. It just says the northern one or the northerner. Uh, the translators of the New King James Version get army from the context because the northerner is, is a soldier, as it were, or those who are in the invading army. An invading army is predicted in the early verses of this chapter, and since armies which invaded Israel usually came from the north, sometimes they came from the south if they were being invaded from, from Egypt, but most of the time invasions came from the north, it's pretty obvious that the men of the army in question are the northerner uh, of verse 20. Enemies coming from Mesopotamia, uh, places like Assyria or Babylon, uh, they're not going to march straight across the desert. Uh, there would be no food or water if you're coming from Babylon straight across. No, uh, you're going to follow what's known as the Fertile Crescent. You're going to go up uh, to northern Mesopotamia and then swing down through Syria and Lebanon, and come into the land of Canaan. And of course, Assyria is more or less north of the land of Canaan anyway. It's, it's uh, north and, and east. And God promises to drive this enemy into the desert. And notice here, he's going to have his face toward the eastern sea. The eastern sea may refer to the Dead Sea, as some scholars think, but it's more likely the Persian Gulf that's being talked about. That he's going to go back the way he came, in other words. And his back is going to be to the Western Sea. That's the Mediterranean always in the Old Testament. So uh, notice his back is to the Mediterranean. That means he's leaving. He's leaving the land of Israel. He's leaving Judah. The reference to his stench is likely a reference to decaying corpses. Uh, this could easily be a poetic way of talking about 
the death of a large portion of the Assyrian army and the rest of them fleeing back to their homeland. Second Chronicles chapter 32 speaks of the Assyrian invasion of Judah. And then we read in Second Chronicles 32 verses 20 through 22, Now because of this, because the Assyrians had blasphemed the Lord, now because of this, King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, prayed and cried out to heaven. Then the Lord sent an angel who cut down every mighty man of valor, leader and captain in the, in the camp of the king of Assyria, so that he returned shamefaced to his own land. And when he had gone into the temple of his God, some of his own offspring struck him down with the sword there. Thus the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others, and guided them on every side. So we see here also, not only does God restore prosperity or, or gifts that he has taken away, blessings he's taken away as a chastisement for sin, but he also protects his repentant people. And we can apply that spiritually as well as physically. Think of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. James 4, verse 7. Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I guarantee you that I'm not stronger than the devil, nor are you. But God is. As John says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And so James says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. God protects his people. Not from every possible earthly harm, but certainly from lasting spiritual harm. Fourth, we see here that God promises Judah in this passage to give abundant blessings to the people of Judah if they were to repent. From this we see that God abundantly blesses repentant sinners. As sinners return to him, he abundantly blesses him. Not only does he restore what he first took away, but he gives more on top of it. Verses 25 and 26. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never be put to shame. Not only will they begin an economic recovery, uh, starting from the low position that they were in after the devastating uh, plague of locusts and the drought and the invasion of an army, they won't be starting from scratch and working their way back up, but rather things will be so prosperous that the wealth that they lost during those years of famine will be restored on top of the ordinary income that they're getting from these prosperous years. We might see it if you think of something like the prosperity that our nation enjoyed after World War II. Uh, the war was preceded by the Great Depression. Uh, wartime production uh, began an economic recovery, but due to the war, 
goods and services were still scarce. So people were making money, people back home were going to work in the factories and, and doing wartime production, farmers were farming, and uh, workers were working at various industries, and then you also had soldiers who were away and they were getting paid uh, as they served, but uh, they didn't have much to spend it on, so they were sending it home. So uh, people were making money, but they didn't have a whole lot to spend it on because of scarcity. So when the war was over, people had a lot of savings to spend, uh, and they bought new cars and new houses and so on. And that uh, brought about an economic boom, or helped contributed to, anyway, an economic boom in the 1950s. Here, in the case of ancient Judah, it's not because of people storing up savings in the meantime. It's because God provides the prosperity they lost by his sovereign power. The prosperity they would have enjoyed in those years of plague and drought and invasion are restored to them on top of the things that they're now earning and building, the wealth that they're building through the blessings they currently have. And so there's a super abundant blessing. God abundantly blesses repentant sinners. Again, God does not promise his people earthly wealth for faithfulness, but he does promise abundant blessing. In this case, it did involve the restoring of the things that they had lost. But nevertheless, you know that he will provide for you abundant blessing for your repentance. Number five, he promises to restore Judah to faithfulness. Verse 27, Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. So notice again, there's the statement of, of not being put to shame. In other words, the restoration will prove that the Lord is in the midst of his people. That he is their God. And they therefore will have a renewed understanding of that fact. They will be thus covenantally faithful, knowing that the Lord is God, and that it is empty and fruitless to follow after false gods or any other thing that you would put before the Lord. And from this we see that God is pleased to glorify himself through the repentance of his people. So here again are some principles we can draw from this passage. So there were teachings for Judah in that particular time, but there are general principles we can draw from it and apply to ourselves. Number one, God is ready to forgive. Don't flee from God when you sin. Flee to Him. He's ready to forgive as you return to Him. Confess your sins. Ask His help to overcome them. He's ready and faithful to forgive those who are in Christ Jesus. Number two, when the Lord removes a blessing in order to correct his people when they've sinned, he will usually restore what he removed when they repent. This is especially true when that blessing is assurance of faith and salvation in Christ, as we've been considering recently in the adult Sabbath school class. It's ordinary for Christians, as they mature in Christ, to gain a sense of assurance that, that we are truly in Christ and are God-saved people indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but sometimes God will remove that blessing of assurance, that, of being aware of your assurance, that is, in order to correct sins. When repentance occurs, then, the restoration of that blessing usually comes. 
if you find the Lord has removed some blessing from your life, turn from your sins, and he may well restore them to you. A third principle we see is that the Lord protects repentant sinners. Have no fear of sin or Satan when you repent. Have no fear. God protects repentant sinners. Don't think, oh, if I confess this sin, there will be all these other consequences I don't want to have to deal with. God will protect repentant sinners. Fourth, he abundantly blesses repentant sinners. Not only does he restore former blessings, he abundantly blesses, overflowing. Whatever blessings he gives you when you flee to him, they will be super abundant. They will be overflowing. There will be many blessings. And then lastly, the Lord is pleased to glorify himself through the repentance of his people. If you love God, you will want to glorify him. If you want to glorify him, you will turn more and more from your sin. That glorifies God. And the Lord is pleased to do that. So again, that teaches us, that brings us back around to the first lesson. Don't run away from God when you realize your sin. Run to him. It glorifies him, and he's pleased to forgive sins for his own glory. Well, let's pray. Lord, we know that you are a forgiving God and ask that you would forgive, therefore, our sins. Restore us to you and restore blessings when you remove them. Continue to protect us and glorify yourself through our continued repentance. For we pray in the name of the one who had no sins to repent of, and yet bore ours on the tree. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.